Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Today on the show, we're going to talk to Brendan O'Neill who's the editor of Spiked Online, which is a fascinating publication, uh, which you'll learn about in a minute, uh, that I just discovered recently, but that has some of the best pro-human, pro-industry content I've seen anywhere. Lots of really well-written stuff, just really, really, uh, really, really cool stuff to read, even, even in cases where I don't fully agree. Uh, so, I, as a nonfiction writer, as my primary occupation, it's always it's always fun to meet or or you know meet through reading uh, a nonfiction writer who's truly interesting and writes genuinely insightful things that aren't just derivative. And so, reading Brendan's stuff this morning, uh, I didn't even go to the beach. Uh, at least I didn't go to the beach at the time I used to because I was I was really occupied with his with, with his book, A Duty to Offend. So we'll talk with Brendan about his book, about Spiked, and about humanism versus anti-humanism. So stick with us. Oh, and one, one more thing. I'm recording this after I recorded my interview with Brendan, so I can guarantee it's worth listening to, uh, but we did have some uh, connection issues, so my voice should be fine. His voice will occasionally get a little bit garbled, but um, the content should be totally clear, so uh, bear with us, and in the future we'll investigate uh, how to prevent this sort of thing from happening. All right. We'll be joined by Brendan O'Neill on the other side. Power Hour. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're now joined by Brendan O'Neill, editor of Spiked Online. Brendan, welcome to Power Hour. Hi, Alex. It's good to have you on. So I I discovered uh, Spiked Online maybe two months ago uh, when a friend of mine, and actually a senior fellow now at Center for Industrial Progress, Pierre de Rocher, uh, was just telling me, hey, you know about these guys Spiked, right? They've got really interesting views that you would like, and even though, at least historically, they come from the left. And I said, no, I've never heard of them. And then I, I started reading it, and I was pretty astonished as to well, how similar, I mean, it's self-serving to say, but how similar some of the stuff was, but also how good it was. Uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit about it in connection with your new book. I, I think just good writing is very rare. It's rare that I, there aren't that many nonfiction mm-hmm. authors that I just will read for pleasure, so reading your book is fun, so we'll get to that in a second. But, so what is spiked and, and where does it come from? Because when people read some of the ideas, they'll think either that I ripped you off or you ripped me off. Which your 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 stuff is older, so you definitely didn't rip me off. Right. So, Spiked is a, a daily online magazine. We come from a kind of left wing background, although we wouldn't necessarily describe ourselves as left wing today. Some people call us Marxist libertarians because we have that kind of lefty background, but we're also very interested in liberty, freedom, autonomy, things that left wing people unfortunately aren't particularly interested in anymore. And we write about progress, growth, uh, the importance of freedom of speech. All of those are our kind of core values for economic growth, the need for greater human progress, and the right of people to think and say whatever they want. 
so I, I want to push on this idea of of coming from the left because if you talk about well people from the left yeah. value certain things well I mean historically you can say to some extent in the United States there is a a, a value of liberty in the more uh, spiritual realm personal realm um, in terms of people standing up uh, for things like you know uh, getting religion out of government and freedom of speech at least the American left in the United States. Uh, but in the realm of of economic activity and of of production uh, in the United States, at least, and, and well, certainly in in you know uh, all the uh, socialist countries around the world, there was the opposite of liberty. So, so in what way do you say that the left should be concerned with liberty? Well, we see ourselves as coming from a very old left-wing tradition, the kind of left who would sit on the left side of the French National Assembly after the revolution, which is where the, the term the left comes from. You know, the people who sat on the left side were very pro-reason, very pro-liberty, very pro-enlightenment, that kind of really early form of left-wing politics, which lost its way over the years but it was there at the very beginning and in relation to economic growth and industry I'm always struck whenever I reread the communist manifesto which I try and do at least once every six months to keep myself sane it's amazing how much space Marx and Engels devote to praising the bourgeoisie and the capitalist class for their economic growth and for the way in which they transformed the world and in fact Marx and Engels sing the praises of them for developing international trade for moving people out of the country and into the cities and they really celebrate for about 10 pages the wonders created by capitalism and then of course they go on to say it's not enough it hampers it makes people feel alienated it needs to be overthrown and so on and so forth but they recognize that there was something really important in that kind of early burst of industrial growth and I think that's the kind of left-wing view that we also look back to which is one that was very much in favor of more economic growth, more industry, in order to liberate more people from poverty. What you mentioned about Marx in regard to uh, you know, celebrating the the conquest of poverty, and, and more broadly, what I'd call the, the transformation of nature, the the industrialization of the world, it's it is remarkable looking back to that because I mean. So much of my own focus of Marx when I've read the Communist Manifesto has been on uh, the elements going against uh, economic freedom and going against capitalism. And yet, um, you know, looking at him or looking at Engels, I almost start to like them in the sense, which would be inconceivable to me in the past, in, in the sense that if you think of it as, as capitalism and socialism are at least both attempts at at humanism at human beings benefiting in one way or another and then they're they're defining it different ways and there are different means mm. to it and I, I disagree with one of them profoundly in the end but what we have in the modern world is a whole philosophy that's not even claiming to be concerned about human well-being except in this incredibly derivative mm -hmm. way of if you you know you are the parasite slash polluter uh, of the earth and so in addition to ruining all the other precious species that you should care about more than yourself you'll also ruin your own life by the way uh, but it's it's not like any sort of theory about how to benefit uh, 
human well-being. And, and so it's just, it, it's fascinating to look back at some of these thinkers that I think of as, oh, anti-capitalist, but they're much more pro-humanist and also much more, um, you know, pro, pro-development or pro-transformation is maybe more fundamental. Like there's a, I remember the, you know, Engels has this really interesting uh, criticism of Malthus, right? I mean, he's, you see these guys like back and people don't, uh, mm. don't realize that. So I remember reading about that in, in Merchants of Despair by Robert Zubrin and just, just being uh, fascinated. So how, in terms of your own own journey, how did you uh, start out and, and when did you become interested in this issue of humanism versus anti-humanism or humanism versus environmentalism? Well, I started out in getting involved in left-wing politics uh, about 20 years ago uh, when I was quite young and I started writing for a magazine called Living Marxism, which was the precursor magazine to Spiked. It was a, a monthly print magazine. And people who worked for Living Marxism, me and a few others, just became increasingly agitated with the left for precisely the reasons you've outlined, which is that they seem to forget their original mission of um, expanding the human footprint and increasing economic growth. And calling for more jobs, more industry, less poverty, the kind of things that the left did for decades seem to have been forgotten over the past 20 years as the left embraced the kind of misanthropic Malthusian politics of environmentalism, which is much more about protecting nature from rapacious mankind than it is about allowing mankind to, to flourish and to grow and to have more comfort and more wealth. So that was my kind of origin. I started out on the radical left in Britain and just became more disappointed with the direction the left was moving in. I remember very early on when I was first doing radical politics around 1992, I was really struck by how many people of my age, I was I guess 18 at the time, were getting involved in the anti-roads protests and they were all tying themselves to trees and demanding... Anti, this what are the anti-roads protests? Anti-roads protests were these uh, an attempt to stop the building of new roads and new motorways around Britain um, in, in order to save the environment from all the pollution that would be created. So you had all these people who considered themselves radical, tying themselves to trees, living in trees for months on end so that they wouldn't be cut down, stopping people from laying down tarmac, stopping people from creating these new roads for cars to drive on and I remember thinking what's going on here you know I thought the left was about fighting racism or or demanding more economic growth or talking about national liberation or whatever issues used to be concerned of concern to the left had seemed to just give way to this new movement which was about stopping progress I remember that was a a very early turning point for me thinking you know the left has definitely lost the plot here so we need to rethink um, what it means to be left wing today. So in, in, in retrospect, or maybe you thought of this at the time, what's your explanation? Because the, the new left has become dominant in the, you know, mm. within the left, you know, in the United States, let alone in Europe, where it's even worse. Absolutely. The, the, that, that new problematic left has won the argument really with the old left and the old left is kind of dying out and is actually also actually irrelevant now i think a lot of its old arguments don't really um stand for much in the 21st century so that new misanthropic left has definitely won and and the, the 
way I would try to deal with it, I, I look back at some of the Marxist writings on Malthus, because as you say, Engels and also Marx himself wrote a lot in Malthus. And in fact, so did some early Russian revolutionaries, you know, some of the people who ended up dead at the hands of Stalin in the 1930s. In the early 20th century, a lot of those Russian revolutionaries wrote some very good stuff about Malthus. And what they all talked about was this really bad tendency to try to naturalize poverty, to say that th this argument that which came from Malthus originally, which was the idea that the reason people are poor, the reason they haven't got enough to eat is because nature only gives us so much so it's nature's fault it's a natural problem and therefore we have to curb human population and you know the left defined itself for a century and a half in direct opposition to that idea they said there's nothing natural about poverty we can grow our way out of it we can develop our way out of it we can expand pe people's opportunities and then what you have over the past 20 years is the left completely doing a complete flip reversal and embracing those early Malthusian arguments. So, and I think the reason that has become the dominant outlook is not simply because the left has become quite, or not simply because of groups like Greenpeace, but more importantly, I think, because the other side in the argument, which is the free market side or, or the right wing side, has actually caved in on a lot, on a lot of these questions and have opened the the door to precisely those kind of arguments. And I often think that modern anti-capitalism is actually a product of capitalism itself, and particularly of capitalism having lost faith in its old mission to remake the world. I think very often capitalism itself sends the signal that it is a rotten, which invites all this kind of new left critique. So... Here's an add-on to the question, just because there are, I mean, I have my own views, but you have in the last 40 years, I'd say, in particular, uh, just refutation after refutation of the anti-humanist worldview. I mean, you have, you know, if man is viewed as a parasite and mm. polluter, you have an amazing era of wealth creation where well-being is spreading around the globe. You have the you know, mm. transformation of multiple non-resources into resources, and you have, in particular, the industrialized nations making their environments uh, better and better. So why is it then that that now is the time? It's that it, it's not as if this arose, say, at the time where there were lots of uh, there was lots of pollution from, you know, new oil wells. It's not like environmentalism mm. rose then, when in a sense you'd have much more reason to at least be concerned about pollution because stuff was being dumped all over the place. Now it's in insanely pristine and and yet it's completely overtaken the left. So why do you think that is? Well, that's the great conundrum of our times, this question of why at precisely a time when human life is improving enormously and has improved enormously, you have this extremely downbeat, pessimistic, anti-human outlook. And, you know, I always think of, of China, you know, in China where there has been huge economic leaps forward, where millions of people have been lifted out of absolute poverty and have moved into cities and are basically going through a similar experience to what England went through 150 or 200 years ago, except on a, a far vaster scale. 
and yet people look at that and they can't they only see the negative impact they only see what it's doing to rivers or how many gray sky days there are in beijing they're, they're incapable of seeing the positive effects on human life of those kind of leaps forward so it's the great question of our age why are people so miserableist in a time in which things are getting better for huge numbers of human beings and i think what that demonstrates is that this is an ideology which is immune in many ways to facts or figures or evidence um, you know it's, it's ironic that environmentalists will often accuse climate change deniers of not listening to facts and not taking on board information when in fact it's precisely these people these greens who seem incapable of you know, uh, looking at the state of the world and understanding it in a rational way. I think it, it comes in large part from the events of the 1970s, the oil crisis, the crash, the, the discussion that that gave rise to, which was very interesting. It didn't give rise to a discussion of, well, how can we recover from this and what do we need to do? It gave rise to a whole new outlook which said, well, maybe we've gone too far. You know, you have the whole Club of Rome movement, you have the birth of the neo-Malthusianism, you have the, the rise of all these backward, quite poisonous arguments which basically said, well, maybe humanity has done too much, maybe it's time to rein in, maybe it's time to curb numbers and have a bit more population growth. I think from the 70s onwards, you have this kind of extremely downbeat view of humankind. Even through the 80s, even under Thatcherism and Reaganism, you see the continued growth growth of this very pessimistic worldview and 40 50 years later it's become the dominant worldview because i think there isn't enough people challenging it the example of china really sticks out at me in that in that people can't they they can't think of it positively even though you know you we had a guest on last week talking about the average life expectancy of beijing is over 80 like you have, mm. you have these, and overall life is so much better. But people's people's view of the world is so skewed that all mm. they can see is waste. It's just like yeah. there should be a world. You know, human beings are the only things that create waste in this view, and it's just like the world should be. Uh, our whole focus should be: Have we scrubbed the waste of human beings? And ultimately, you know, the the leaders want to <laughs> scrub human beings uh, off. Yeah. off the planet but you just can't see it as okay yeah sometimes it's smoggy outside and that's uh that's unpleasant uh, but i like i have air conditioning and i actually have food and and i can actually do a job that's interesting and i'm choosing to live here i don't think people realize that this is not not that you know people are being it's not like you know world war ii where you're like forced into the army this is people people leaving the countryside and being much better off, and that that um, just that skewed perspective. So I'm curious if you have any any more thoughts on on how that works because it's it's so perverse that if you can't see the good in that situation, yeah, it's it's really perverse, and I think it speaks to the way in which human beings are now seen entirely as consumers, as people who use up resources and effectively as a drain on the planet or a pox on the planet, a plague, you know, the more extreme green 
elements will describe us as a plague who are a disease that are destroying this this ball flying through space and when you see people as a drain as as simply as consumers then you 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 will develop a very misanthropic mindset and you will see every new building as a kind of a, a, a rape of the planet. That's how people perceive of these things. And what they fail to understand, of course, is that humans aren't just consumers, they're also producers. We make things, we build things, we create things, we discover new resources, we discover new uses for old resources. They're incapable of seeing the creative side of mankind because they're so obsessed with the destructive side of mankind, which they exaggerate hugely. And I think once you've adopted that ideological mindset that human beings are mouths to feed, you know, rather than also being brains that can think and, and hands that can work. If you just see human beings as mouths to feed, then you will always worry when there are more human beings. You will always worry when huge new cities are built with millions of people teeming in them. And so I think it springs from that extremely anti-human worldview that has developed in, in recent decades. And I think the example of China is a really good one because there's also a real, there's a real raise the drawbridge element to this because what you have are, are people who live in, in the relatively comfortable West whose nations are often built on industrial revolutions and nuclear revolutions who live comfortably, who have, have iPhones, who spend all their days tweeting because they've got so much spare time and they look at somewhere like China or, or India and countries which are going through those industrial leaps forward and they they tut and they sneer and they say well you shouldn't do that you shouldn't make the mistakes we made i think that's a really arrogant irritating uh, approach that they take to the third world which is simply trying to catch up with the kind of comfort that we enjoy so that there's also that real anti-capitalism has become not so much radical but an expression of a kind of privileged narcissism amongst many in the West who, even as they live these very comfortable long lives, even as they benefit from what capitalism has done over the past 150 years, they will sneer at any development of it in other parts of the world. I find that really grating. All right. Uh, I want to raise a big issue in a second, but just to give people a flavor of of your book. What, Brandon, what is your book called? A Duty to Offend. A Duty to Offend. So this is, uh, you look at the table, you can get this on Amazon. Um, if you look at the table of contents of this book, it is, uh, it would be hard to, for somebody not to be interested in at least one of the topics. <laughs> so number one is called, these are not all power hour, uh, uh, focused uh, topics, but we have drunk sex, Marxists for capitalism, bringing Spinoza back. Uh, but then there are uh, a couple of uh, of ones that are directly rele uh, relevant to the issue of humanism, are, and uh, particularly coal pride, earth is not finite. And then I'm looking at the others. Well, in any case, uh, I want to just read people a couple of excerpts because this is really well written and not many things are well written and certainly not many things are well written and in favor of human beings. So it's a combination I appreciate. Uh, so uh, I thought I should read a couple of, of, uh, of excerpts for my own entertainment and to encourage people uh, to check this out. And, and some of it also spiked online has some of these essays. But uh, 
so he says, why are so many Australians so sniffy about the coal industry? Everywhere I go, I meet someone who has a beef with the black stuff. And it isn't just the usual suspects. Those green-hearted weepers for Gaia who think any kind of rummaging in the earth for combustible resources is a crime against nature and who are hilariously unaware that their unproductive lives of tweeting and thrift shopping would be impossible if a couple of hundred years ago a man hadn't burnt copious amounts of coal and in the process invented the modern world. I like so that sentence just has, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I had an interesting experience where somebody once asked me, how do you, as, as commenting, I really understood someone well, and I said, how do you, how do you understand me well? And I was thinking about it later, and it's not that I'm good at understanding people, it's that I can read a lot into writing, like I can read from every word how much someone needed to understand to read that word. So it's really, really mm -hmm. fun uh, to read, because you can tell, wow, this guy's really thought about this even just the, you know, the, the deliberate use of the word rummaging, which is how, you know, productive activity is viewed. There's, a, there's another one. Mm. Um, there's a, a, a line that I, uh, I mean, like this, this kind of thing, you almost never get this. I don't get this because to my mind, Australia's coal industry is a wondrous jaw-dropping thing. It should surely stir the heart that Australia unearthed so much of this blackest of minerals, which has eons old sunlight trapped within it, and then exports it by the shipload to China and elsewhere where the sunlight is unlocked and used to power progress and development. I mean, that is just, it's so true, but, but nobody sees it. They don't see it that way. <laughs> this, this goes to the whole philosophy where you have, you know, a friend of mine who works in the oil industry described it as, you know, people have been taught that food is poison and poison is food. And they've been yeah. taught that creation is destruction and destruction is creation. Um, so that's anyway, right. So this is. And, oh, go ahead. Yeah, and I think Cole sums that up perfectly because what you have here is one of the most amazing things we've ever done, which is to unlock the ancient sunlight lying dormant in this kind of mineral and used it to power whole new industries. And yet, the only thing people will say about coal is that digging for it is destructive and burning it is destructive. It really speaks to that inability to see the positive in anything at all, even something as wondrous as, as using this mineral to create whole new factories, cities, ways of life. It's, it's a really wondrous thing. Yeah, just one more sentence that, that I love, particularly the part embedded within M dashes. Coal, you see, M dash, or more accurately, I don't know if people even know what M dash is, but or more accurately, man's discovery of its inner powers was one of the great liberators of mankind. So that is exactly what 99% of people who talk about coal don't get, which is that yeah. it's 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 the real achievement is that it's not really about coal; it's about the coal industry. It's about yeah. man's man's uh, manipulating this otherwise useless thing for his purposes in this magnificent way. Because people talk about oh, count on coal, and coal can do that. But they make, they make unaltered nature the star versus intelligent transformation the star. That's right. And, and the other thing that they completely overlook is the, the knock-on effect that these discoveries have on everyday life. You know, not only do they create jobs and new industries, but then when you have a mass movement of people from the country to the city, as we had in the Industrial Revolution in England and is, as is happening in other parts of the world now, you have a situation where people start to say, well, we need schools, actually, so that we can educate our children. And actually, we, we don't want our children to work anymore, so we've got to get them down from the chimneys and stop them being exploited. 
uh, and we think we should have the right to vote and we think maybe women should be allowed to work as well. All these things were direct consequences of something that was started by the Industrial Revolution, which was a huge movement of people, which is why I always think the Industrial Revolution is so far the single most important moment in human history. Not only because of all the new stuff that was created as a result of it, but because it's, it's exactly around that time that you have the birth of new cities, new movements, new social movements, new forms of democracy, all that good stuff comes in large part from what was done by the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, and it's interesting how, I think, not just interesting, but mistaken how the Industrial Revolution is viewed as almost this, this uh, you know, just a, f a finite period of time that ended like the Eisenhower era or something yeah. like that. Like, oh, we had the Industrial Revolution. And now we have the information revolution, as if the information revolution isn't the product of transforming nature in new ways and also exactly. uh, building on uh, the old ways. So here, here's the, the big issue I want to talk about for the rest of the time, which is, is the, the, the philosophy driving uh, this opposition to... Um, you know, to man's development of nature and ultimately to man, but in particular, the lack of a positive uh, philosophy offered by the pro-capitalist, pro-human side, since both of us are, are trying to do this in different ways. But I think it's worth pointing out that there is a whole developed philosophy and at least associated pseudoscience posing as science uh, of anti-humanism. And, and, and I, I like to divide it into the, you know, the man as the, uh, you know, parasite slash polluter. Those are sort of the two ways in which he ruins the planet and then uh, by extension, uh, his own life. So, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's, de you know, he's exceeding his carrying capacity, depriving uh, himself of these finite resources. And then he's also, um, he's also despoiling it. He's also ruining it, you know, poisoning all the other species and ultimately uh, poisoning uh, himself. What's in, you mentioned that the, that the right or the, the pro-capitalist side hasn't fought back against that. But one thing I'd note is that most of them have not really thought about the, the, this core, the core issue underlying it. And this, this is what I'll say. There is a legitimate issue underlying the, what the anti-humanists doing. They're taking one approach, which is a wrong approach, but the, there is an issue of what should be the relationship between man and the rest of nature, and how does that, how does that impact uh, man's long-term survival? Because if you look at a lot mm. of these, these criticisms of what human beings do under capitalism, it's, well, you're ruining the environment that you depend on. You know, you're, you're overstepping your bounds. Yes, you're, there's going to be some waste, but that absolutely needs to be minimized. And there's going to be some consumption, but that absolutely needs to be minimized. And if you don't, then you're going to then you're 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 disrupting the ecosystem that you depend on, and then you're going to get ruined. So, and particularly in the long term. So this issue of concern with like the wide ranging impacts and the long ranging impacts of what we do and, and defining our proper relationship to nature mm. in relation to those, that's a real issue. And, mm. and my thesis, one of my thesis is that the pro capitalist side has not for the most part articulated anything coherent. They've mostly been reactive. So I'm curious what you, you think of that. Well, I think to the extent that human beings have to be conscious of their impact on the environment or, 
or, or you know, conscious of whether they're creating pollution or too much smog, as they have done throughout history in various different ways. I think that's true, but it needs to be completely disentangled from the politics of environmentalism because that, I would argue, is about something completely different. It might dress itself up as, as a as a war on pollution or an attempt to clean our rivers or an attempt to lessen the human footprint, but it's fundamentally driven by an ideological political view of economic growth as a bad thing, as human beings as, as essentially just polluters and as nature as this kind of thing that we should worship and tiptoe around. So this is the problem we face, you know, undoubtedly environmental problems in the world. I mean, you think of London in the 1950s when there was a great smog. I mean, it was really bad and it was very dangerous for people's health. There are similar situations in China now. The three times I've been to China, I have been struck by the fact that there are days when you can't see the buildings around you because the, the air is very thick and very grey. So these are problems, but I think the politics of environmentalism actually make them more, more difficult for us to tackle. Firstly, because they turn what ought to be discrete problems into these kind of cosmic end-of-the-world issues that should freak us all out. So they, they exaggerate the problem itself. And also, they overlook the fact that the more growth there is, the more progressive a society is, the, the, the more wealthy it is, then the more able it is to deal with these economic pro problems. Uh, sorry, these environmental problems. So I think it, it's, it's important to think about how these things can be addressed, but the, the problem that we have today which goes for the pro-capitalist side in this argument as well is that they have brought much into the politics of environmentalism rather than treating these as discrete issues that need just some rational tackling rather than handling in and and i think the pro-capitalist side has given a green light to environmentalism and has invited it and 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 incited it actually to to become bigger and bigger and i I'm always by the cow of modern capitalists who, who are seem incapable or unwilling to stand up for the great gains they have made and spend their whole time self-flagellating and apologizing and inviting officials from Greenpeace to lecture them about how they can clean up their act. I think you, you need less of that kind of apologism and more of a forthright defense of what we've done over the past hundred years. All right, I want to I want to push back on that a little bit or, or emphasize the kind of angle I'm trying to take. So there is the there's a, a traditional view that in that there are real environmental problems in the world, and envi but environmentalists are not truly concerned about those, and that is absolutely mm -hmm. true. That is absolutely true. Um, what I'm trying to get at is is maybe a deeper issue which is that that there are not so much not so much discrete problems but there are 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 real and are real questions uh philosophical questions uh, among other questions about how on a fundamental level we should relate to our environment what is the proper relationship mm. between man and the rest of nature and in in your writing and in my work there's explicit or or at least implicit uh, viewpoints on you know for instance you talk about expanding the human footprint and that being a good thing but there's a certain philosophy behind that and and 
I think a lot of what's necessary for that philosophy was actually in previous thinkers who lived much closer to nature and who saw the difference between uh, unindustrialized and industrialized nature. But I think today, or mm. one of my criticisms of the right is it's it's so it can and this includes the the energy companies. You can view it as well. They're not courageous, right? They're not. The Greenpeace is obviously trying to extort them, and Greenpeace is obviously corrupt. And yet they're bowing to Greenpeace, and that is true. There's an element of cowardice, and if you have self-esteem, you shouldn't bow to it. But I think more fundamentally, there's a philosophy of environment, which environmentalism has had a monopoly on, which undercuts your self-esteem because it defines you as a parasite polluter. And, and it's not like they have the, um, the opposite view of man as the creator improver. It's not that that's something that's taught mm. or that that's understood, um, and there are a couple of other elements too. But uh, that that's that's my view, and that's part of why I'm excited to have you on and and to to spread your work because I feel like there needs to be um, an explicit humanist philosophy uh, of man and nature. And right now, mm. it's being dominated by the environmentalist, which really means anti-humanist philosophy. Yeah, and and I think, you know, I love nature. I, I, I think it's great. I love going for walks in nature. That's all wonderful. But the problem with environmentalism is actually that it, it alienates man from nature even more because it treats man as this pollutant whose engagement with nature is necessarily going to have a devastating impact. And so it actually, ironically, creates a scenario where there is more distance between man and his natural environment, or certainly more caution, more trepidation, you know, this fear of being too involved in nature, and seeing ourselves as a threat to it. So it creates this whole new ideology, which, a new philosophy in a way, which it, which um, takes us away from nature in a, in a very new way. My philosophy is one that comes much more from the Enlightenment and, you know, the scientific revolutionary Francis Bacon, who, who said rather crudely that we need to extract nature's secrets. And what he and others meant when they said that in, in the 1600s and the, and the 1700s was that we need to understand nature more. We shouldn't see it as this terrifying mystical force. We need to tame it we need to explore it, we need to challenge it sometimes, and sometimes we need to defeat it. And um, the way I see it is that we're, we humanize nature and we hold back some of its bad traits, for example, tsunamis and earthquakes and so on. The more that we can protect ourselves against nature's whims, the better. But also we enjoy nature and we engage with it at that level too. Um, so my philosophy is one which is is a part that is also superior to nature and he is separate from it because he's the only creature on earth who has the ability to understand nature and to and to measure it uh, and uh, the more that we have that attitude the more we will be able to exploit to use an unfashionable word nature's resources while at the same time being able to appreciate nature's beauty the problem with environmentalism is that it it prevents us in many ways from doing both of those things. It doesn't want us to exploit nature's sources. It really wants to keep us away from nature because it thinks everything we do will have a, de a detrimental impact. So we need to recover the philosophical view of human beings as being natural creatures, but also something more than that. And that's not something we should be ashamed of. Yeah, I often like to think of it as the best part of nature. 
you know, because there is yeah. the, there is this nature is a, a weird concept because I, I sometimes refer to it as the rest of nature, um, because it, it, there's this view that we are, you know, that we are somehow outside it. And, and I mean, there is a useful perspective of of differentiating the non man made uh, from the man made, but there's this there is this alienation, and and I want to talk more about this because it's it's I think it's so psychologically damaging. That we, it's this, if you've ever seen these diagrams of the planet, uh, diagrams is too sophisticated, but like the cartoons where we're making the planet sick, right? And mm. like, oh, you, mm. you're infected, the planet, the doctor says to the planet, I don't know where the doctor comes from, but you're, you're infected with humans. You know, you have humans. <laughs> and, you know, the view, or the view of a cancer, like it's, it's obviously such an anti-humanist perspective to call, to, to analogize humans to a cancer, because obviously the thing... Uh, the thing that you call a cancer is much less important, to say the least, than the thing that's afflicted with the cancer. And obviously, it's not humans mm-hmm. who are afflicted with the cancer. It's, it's, but um, so I just want to. Any, any other thoughts on on alienations? Particular. Well, I'm curious what you think of just if if you don't understand how great humans are, then I think it's it's related to just an alienation people. Uh, feel from the world that they don't understand it at all. Because how can you understand the world of technology if you don't understand the beneficent nature of man's transformation? If you really just view man as a parasite, how that? What the hell do you think is going on around you? And, and how in control can you feel of your life? And how how good can you feel about the world? Yeah, I think absolutely. The the politics of environmentalism or or the new anti-humanism, I think, has a devastating impact on how people conceive of themselves and how they relate to each other and how they relate to the world around them. Because if people are viewed as pollutants, then they are going to live this extremely guilt-ridden life. And and we see that with you know, the ritual of recycling or the way in which people will offset their carbon. You know, they'll take a flight somewhere and then they will pay me to plant 40 trees. It's like a, a new form of penance. You know, I grew up a Catholic, so I remember what it's like where anything bad that you did, you had to pay for it quickly. So you live your whole life in the state of concern and agitation and discomfort, really. And I think that's been recreated around the politics of environmentalism. People, they still do most of the stuff they want to do. They have families. They drive cars to the supermarket. They buy nice food that's been flown halfway around the world. They still do that, but they feel bad about it. And they wonder, should they be doing it? So it just creates this sense of unease, I think, across the world, particularly in the West, this sense of unease about daily life and so it it alienates people from nature because we're all taught that we are a a threat to nature but it also alienates us from each other and from the wonderful gains that have been made over the past 200 odd years which have allowed us to live these very comfortable long lives and yet we're encouraged to feel bad about that and I I think it's really summed up there was a campaign in a, a few years ago for everyone to achieve water neutrality, which is where every drop of water you drink or you or use to wash yourself, you would offset it by doing something for the environment. And I just thought to myself, well, there's another word for water neutrality, which is death. One one more thing I'm interested in hearing on you elaborate on a little bit, particularly because you've read uh, 
you know, different 19th century. You're, you're familiar with some of the history of, of the humanist view of nature, uh, which I think it's just so great to read a lot of those mm. older materials. And those people were much closer to unaltered nature than we are. So they, they had a much more rational perspective. I mean, there's no, you know, gr almost no Greenpeace mentality back then when you actually have to live in and with the rest of nature you know, without, without really the ability uh, to, to master it. Uh, what about the issue of, of, I think, what used to be people's positive enthusiasm about transforming nature and about man's, man's great creations? You hear stories about people celebrating taming a continent or cheering when a bridge is built. And mm. we should, there's so much that we should be cheering about that we're doing. And yet instead, if we take something like agriculture, you know, we have these companies like Monsanto that have fed millions or billions of people and nobody is, is enthralled by it at all. And in fact, it's just an easy whipping boy if you're any kind of major industrial force in the world. Well, I mean, can you just contrast today to what it used to be like in terms of people's enthusiasm because you know we are creators that's what we spend our lives doing and if we don't appreciate that and enjoy that what does that do to our whole lives yeah i think that's absolutely right and and, and if you look back to you know all the forms of technology that man has created in the past you know, were ships that were capable of crossing oceans or rocks that could fly to the moon. All that stuff was seen very positively at the time, even though it involved a huge amount of risk. I mean, setting sail in the 1400s across the ocean, not knowing what was at the other side, must have been a genuinely terrifying thing to do. But it was encouraged, it was celebrated, it led to huge discoveries. I'm always struck by the fact that there are only about 50 years between man's discovery of the of flight and his ability to fly and then landing on the moon. You know, these things moved very quickly. And the reason they moved very quickly is because there was a climate in which they were seen as positive, good things to do, in which they were celebrated, in which millions upon millions of people would sit down and watch the moon landing and talk about it and, and celebrate that as a wonderful development and a wonderful form of exploration. What you have now is just a far more downbeat attitude to every form of progress that takes place. You know, you can have a situation where, as you say, something like GM is invented, where mankind has the ability to interfere with nature at a very intricate level to create crops that will defy the weather and continue to grow, or which contain the right kind of vitamins to prevent people from getting um, bad eyesight or, or losing their sight. Man can now manipulate crops in order to improve human life and, and the length of human life. And yet the response to that amongst these kind of Western miserablists is to treat it as terrible, evil, dangerous, wicked. You know, in Britain, um, eco-activists have actually broken into GM laboratories and smashed up their crops and burnt down their crops. I mean, real backward uh, uh, stuff, medieval attacks going on on this new form of technology. So that, I think, is one of the depressing aspects of our age, which is, is that these discoveries are still being made. New forms of progress are still being pursued. Industry continues, but there's no social, political validation for that. 
So it, it continues out of, out of necessity because we still need all this stuff, and yet we seem incapable of validating it at the political level, at the cultural level, at the social level. And that, I think, is what we need to repair. The fact that this stuff is going on, human life continues to improve, but what we need now is a more conscious celebration of that as a thing. Not just as a necessary thing, not just as a burden we have to put up with, but as a thing that is worthy of celebration. I think that's so important, and there there is an analogy that's at least a decent analogy that I just thought of, I hope, which is that you often hear, and it's, it's important that the if if you're the kind of person who who works hard in life and you know whether you make a lot of money or not but let's say somebody works hard makes a lot of money and and someone will tell them you know you should make sure that you're enjoying this like you're working so hard you you should definitely reap the rewards of it in terms of enjoyment and that's a really good kind of thought to have and that's true of an entire culture uh, that if you know people are working hard, they're spending their lives doing this, and and in particular, the people who are doing the most are being uh, being told that it's not good, and 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 deriving much less enjoyment from it. And then a lot of us are a lot of people aren't engaging in it at all, or engaging in it much less, or not not aspiring to help master nature because they believe that it's bad. And I, I have this so, so there's this element of of we should we're doing a lot of good stuff we can a do more and b enjoy it a lot more and it's the philosophy that's that's uh that's holding us back so i'm uh again really really grateful to you for for putting forward uh, good philosophical ideas on this topic because it's 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 very rare i mean very very rare uh, to do so um yeah, and I, I think that so I'm I'm eager to to help spread some of your work, and uh, people can start by checking out a duty to offend, which is I think I, I was able to order from Amazon, so it's it's available now, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Anything else of yours that uh, people should check out? Spike-Online.com is the website, right? Absolutely, they should read Spike. That is where they will find a lot of these arguments spelled out in a lot of detail. All right, Brendan. Well, thanks so much for coming on and thanks for all of your work. Thanks, Alex. Thanks again to Brendan for being on the show. I think I covered just about everything I wanted to. Oh, well, I had one thought about the precautionary uh, principle, which I was in. I was in Belgium earlier this week i'm trying to get oriented because i was you know, the time changed and stuff but yeah or late last week early this week and it's interesting because the idea of the, the precautionary principle is is much bigger overseas than it is here uh, but it generally it has to do with you shouldn't engage in some new technological endeavor until you can prove that it won't be uh, damaging which has obvious problems with it because how how can you disprove uh such a thing. Um, I mean, because somebody can always make up new ways in which it, quote, could uh, be damaging. But it's, it's, I, I thought of this in connection, uh, and I apologize in advance if this, this thought isn't fully coherent, but uh, I thought of it in a connection with the idea of, of unlocking 
nature's secrets because Brendan was emphasizing that and, and I was thinking it's an interesting avenue to emphasize about about you know part of our mastery of nature is, is our intellectual penetration of it uh, understanding of it discovery of its mechanisms and part of what the precautionary principle is saying is your intelligence isn't really intelligence you can't actually understand the way things work in a way such that you can engage in new things and um, generally reap positive results because there will be all because you can't really understand things and for all you know what seems like uh, something really beneficial will be in effect a bomb that will ruin nature so there's just always this view that we can't intelligently proceed because we can't really understand the world uh, in a meaningful way, because of course, if we had complete understanding of it, then and and of all the different mechanisms, then of course we could proceed in an intelligent way. Now we don't have that, but we have a progressively growing amount of understanding of the of the mechanisms, and as a result, we should have more and more confidence in our ability to do things uh, intelligently, and that can even include testing things out in certain ways. Uh, you know, to, to discover new mechanisms or to, to look for unforeseen mechanisms. But it's really interesting how fundamental the issue of man's mind is to all of this and, and how contempt for denial of the mind is involved in, in everything. So the precautionary principles denying knowledge and the, the what we call the parasite principle, maybe, or the view of man as parasite, is denying the mind's role in creating, and um, you know, in, with the pollution aspect, it's it's really man viewed as a mindless uh, consumer, exploiter, despoiler. But it's just that he he is unintelligent and and like you know senseless and self-destructive in just you know, gobbling things up and spewing things out and, you know, dumping waste. I guess he's unintelligent in regard to the issue of, of waste uh, and byproducts. So in, in all of these, it really comes down to uh, your perspective on the mind. And if you, you view man as having a mind and you view it as efficacious, then the, the relationship toward the rest of nature can be mastery. If you um, view the mind as, you know, illusory in its efficacy, then it, the relationship to the rest of nature has to be, uh, you know, submission and abstinence. So anyway, that's some of my uh, off-the-cuff thoughts about that. But I, I, I found that clarifying. It's always interesting to hear how other what other people emphasize because it can it can uh, it trigger a lot of progress in one's own mind. Anyway, that's, that's all for now on that issue. Of course, we'll be revisiting it over and over and over until we live in a humanist world. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Um, terms of following us, make sure to go to industrialprogress.com, sign up for the newsletter, follow us whether as me, as as I Love Fossil Fuels, I Love Nuclear, Center for Industrial Progress, you can follow all of those, uh, or just a couple on Facebook and on Twitter. Next week, we will be back with another great guest, another great show. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.